0: Last time where we basically we ran through the parable of the king of india and we focused in on the fact that the kuzari of the yehuda lady is trying to show that and what i did in Chappelle's earlier today is i took a similar parallel of maimonides where maimonides does a very similar thing about a king but he plays it out in a different way what he basically does is he gives a parable to try and illustrate that a king exists the parable goes along the lines of there's a money changer that comes from a certain king. How do I know that king exists? Well, the money changer has lots of cash and the money changer is this dweeby, like weak fellow. And along comes a massive poor man and begs the money changer for some grain or something to eat. And the money changer just kicks him out. I'm sure it could be put over in a nice way, but what does this illustrate? That the huge man would just beat up the money changer and take his money, And he doesn't. Why doesn't he? because he recognized there's someone standing behind the money changer. If I see such a thing in the world, can I assume <coughs> there is a king behind the money changer? No, maybe he just doesn't want to beat someone up. That's another, that's an interpretation. But if we assume the person generally speaking beats people up, but he's not beating up the money changer. Why isn't he beating up the money changer? The Rambam indicates that clearly there's something behind the money changer. So what's the money changer? Person who changes money, I suppose. And you really behind you like an authority. Authority that, that's, that's standing in the background. No, 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 no. There's, there's no papers because I'm going to be sidestepping it into a different direction. But Maimonides, Maimonides tries to give over the idea that we can talk about God's existence, but we don't know anything about God's essence or anything like that. We just know that exists a king. Why? Because I see the experience of a money changer. Now, the the parallel to life is that life has a certain natural law to it. So I can assume a law giver. We have a certain uh, patterns we see in the world, so I can assume a law giver, a pattern maker behind the patterns. If you heard our lady's story that he gave us was very different. It was about a king of India, who's justice, who has justice, who has compassion, who has character traits, who gives gifts, who sends letters. Rabbi Yehudah Lady is giving us the experience of a king, an encounter with a king, a king who wants something of us. He uses the words to the king of the Khazars: would you feel bound to serve that king? Would you feel bound to that king? And the Khazari king's like, I'm not sure, I don't know if necessarily this king exists. And Rabbi Lady says, well, what if there were letters with the king? Gifts with the king? Magical items with the king? With, sorry, with the people who represent this king. Would you believe in the king then? So, well, yeah, maybe I would, because I would see evidence, I would see reason to believe that the king exists. Rabbi Huda Levi focuses in on the encounter, the experience. But it's more than just the experience of, what would it mean to feel that you're bound to a king? The whole story of the Khuzari began with experience and continues to play itself out with the concept of experience. How so? The beginning, it opened up with a dream. We're now going through the first part. At the end of the first part, the king converts to Judaism. Why does he convert to Judaism? Based on the argument for Judaism. Nope. Based on argument, again, of the angels. Other, other nations. The angel was at the beginning, telling him to go on this journey. Mm-hmm. He goes on the journey, but it's really interesting. He speaks to the Christian and he doesn't shove away the Christian. He's like, I don't have your experience. I wasn't brought up believing in well, the, 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 the conquest when it comes to the Arabs, the different experiences of Christian experiences that justifies... Wow, that's a huge moment. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, anyway. So, he... The king, the king basically... <laughs> Pretty <laughs> huge. I, usually, I just uh, don't, uh, don't care, but it's, it's, yeah. so, so 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 I'll see if I can I can yeah, uh, ahead, ignore him. <laughs> so basically, so the king the king has basically described himself as being someone who is began his journey because of an experience. He interacts with the Christian and the Muslim, and he doesn't say your logic is wrong, he just describes us not sharing their experience. Uh-huh. And then goes back to the Jew. But how does he convert at the end? Because of another experience. The second part opens up with the king having another dream. I'm ruining the story here. The king has another dream. What's the dream? To go to a certain cave where you'll find Jews keeping Shabbos. He goes, well, you know, in this random cave, there are Jews keeping Shabbos. sitting around. Sitting around. And what does he do? He converts. Why? Because of Shabbat. Not because of Shabbat. He had a dream to tell him to go there. He went there and there were Jews. So it was like... And then we... He had an experience that motivated his life. Now, this is really, really interesting. Why? Because when people reflect on why do people adopt a religious worldview, it isn't because of arguments. To whatever extent a person adopts a religious worldview, whether they become full-blown um, fanatics or they tentatively dance with the idea of religion, adopt it to a certain extent, It is always on the basis of some form of experience. And when I say experience, I don't mean Jesus spoke to you. I don't mean you were out in the forest and some experience can really mean many things, but nobody comes to you and says, well, listen, I read the ontological argument and wow, time to adopt and put on Senate. No one does. People aren't forced into it because of the power of a rational argument. The way one of my teachers Chaim Eisen put it in a delicate way, is that if people say such a thing, they're, they're either lying or, 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 they're, or they're a little bit silly. Nobody is moved completely to change their life because someone gave them a deductive argument. That's not how it works. Now, a person would say, well, maybe we know people who feel that, it, that the question would be is, is it the force of the argument or an experience? We are clearly widening the scope of what we mean by experience, as I will display now. Yes. <laughs> Rechaim Isaac? Yeah. A lot of the ideas that I display. Chaim Aizen. 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 A lot of the ideas that I give over in this class, he's, he's a, a far wiser person than I am. And he develops these ideas. And I, it, the reason why I'm bringing this up there is because I hadn't thought about it until he pointed it out. I felt like an idiot when he asked me the question I asked you and I didn't have a good answer because <laughs> the question was why did the king convert? And part of my brain was obviously he was convinced on some level because that's the natural progress that we all look at it as. But he's like, that's not the case. So what's Rabbi Huralei doing? Why is he giving us a whole logical structure of an argument of, of the truth of Judaism? I mean, it's not that that's quite what we're going to do now but he develops the argument that the Jewish people had a certain experience in the desert at Sinai, And then he sort of structures Jewish thought for us. Why, if everything comes down to experience, the proposition we're making here is that when we talk about, people speak about the argument of the truth of Judaism, from Yehuda Halevi's point of view, it's not about a logical argument that's going to compel you. It's a logical structure that will open you up to have an experience. Not that you'll be sitting down and then suddenly you will feel God. I don't mean experience like that. The Jewish people experience God at Sinai, did that happen? No one will ever know. We'll never know for sure. We haven't got time machine and go back and travel to see if that actually took place or it didn't take place. But the Jewish tradition has a very powerful, let's call it vessel to put such an experience in. I, through understanding the probability, possibility of the actual event really taking place and being able to argue for it, in a rational sense of the word, to be able to argue for the event taking place, I can open myself up to the sonatic experience. Does that make sense? When I say experience, I'm going back to experience all the time. When I was younger, I used to look at the idea of religious experience as being the stupidest thing in the world. Why? Because I never had any. I never had any. I don't have religious experiences. But reviewed on is expanding the concept of experience. If I'm moved because of the synatic revelation that God spoke to the Jewish people, what do I mean by moved by that? Meaning, I'll explain. Rabbi Huda Levi creates an argument that shows that the the historical event, the testimony the Jewish people laid down throughout history, is worth something. How much it's worth, we can discuss. But it's worth something that allows me, as a person, to adopt the experience. The adopting of the experience, meaning recognizing my ancestors. And by the way, this only really works in this way for Jewish people, which is kind of interesting as well. How Geirim fits into this structure is another question. But a person who's Jewish, it's your ancestry. It's an experience that's part of your history. Would I be moved by that experience? No, how do I know it happened? Let's say I can argue for it actually happened. Can you then let yourself be moved by the experience? That I think is the best way of expressing what I think Rabbi Huda is doing. Mm -hmm. Your ancestors might have stood at a a mountain and had a covenant with God. They experienced that. Can you be moved by that experience and thereby if you can imagine it actually happening, but not only imagine it actually happening, be able to argue that it actually happened. Can you be moved by that experience? Thereby you have the movement, the internal movement, but also the rational argumentation. If I can give you a rational historical argument that the event took place, let's say say that was possible. Could you be moved by the experience? Could you be inspired by the experience? Could you let that experience that they experienced, your ancestors, not someone else's ancestors, your ancestors, it's part of your story. If you actually could argue that it took place, would that be an experience? If you could, if you were convinced it took place, would that be an experience? No, we haven't experienced it. So I'm expanding what we mean by experience. I don't mean you experienced it, but your ancestors had an experience. For example, it's it the Holocaust. Did you experience the Holocaust? No, you weren't there. But are you profoundly affected by the Holocaust? Of course, we, we all are because we believe it actually happened. And we are moved by it in a different way than someone from China is. They have the same evidence, but they're not moved by it the same way we are. And using that sort of language as an experience, that's what Rabbi Yehuda Lady is trying to encourage us along that road. To adopt. It's It's not only because. Part of it's because we know it's true, but part of it is because it affects us. Correct. But so so you could say that about Judaism because that experience on Mount Sinai affects how we live. It affects how we live, affects how we relate to God, affects the entirety of Jewish history. But the only question is, do we think it happened? For example, the Holocaust, there are many people who do not believe it happened, who argue against it happening. So so but they, they definitely try and put that on the table. But only how, how long ago is that? So but People argue against that experience. So what Rabbi Yehud Lady is doing here is giving us a rational argument to a historical event of your ancestors that allows you to adopt that experience as if you were there. So if we want to be very analytical in our language, what are you walking away with? You will act in your life as if the event took place. Do you know it took place? No. Were you there? No. But you can act in your life as if it took place on the basis of, a historical argument, which I'm going to try and get over in a minute. But, uh, no, yeah. there's kind of obviously like every Jewish family has a different level of like, the books can make to the show. And like, I people's family went to where I 90 like, they're like, oh, he was like, their dad was in the camp. So, like, but there's still an idea of like, even if the bodies be a personal link, there's still a collective feeling. Yes. Is that sort of what you think? Yes. And I hadn't thought about it before I just mentioned that you were asking the question. I hadn't thought about the Holocaust because I probably was thinking it was a negative. But it, you're right. It's the same thing. Even if you just found out you were Jewish, you would still feel connected. In a very similar way. Wow. it's a very good point. It's like a, almost like a, a union, collective consciousness that we all share it. But it's kind of, wow. in a weird way, it's kind of... Like I found this a lot that it's, it's, it's overshadowing... Like people, Are we talking about the Holocaust. Though? Yeah, no, like it's because it's like the closest event that we all universally—it's like the nearest event that we all mm-hmm. universally believe in. In a way, it overshadows. Of course, actually, well, like what, secular. What, what I mean is like for secular Jews who don't who don't really know if they believe in, it's like the thing—it's the event they identify with more. Like a lot of the times, like like coming from my own experience, like the first the, the first thing you can connect to is the Holocaust because, like you said, like you know it happened. So, As opposed to yeah, like, things you're not sure of. For sure, for sure. Obviously, there's going to be a gradient of convincedness, meaning you'll be more, in, in a way, to put it in a very crap, not crap, sorry, crude language, you're more sure the Holocaust happened than Sina happened. Yeah. <gasps> How can you say such a thing? It, it's kind of true. What am I more sure of? all these things come together now a person can say well technically speaking if the argument's strong enough you should be yeah we're not we're not we're not we're not okay. i don't know brains um... in black. this cup i am more sure of than the existence of basically most things i mean i'm pretty convinced this cup exists did a certain event happen in jewish history on the level of convincedness more sure of that. <coughs> on the level of it changing my life so, meaning there are certain, in terms of developing the argument, I think the thing to hold into account first is that when we're talking about ideas that are transformative in this nature, there's no there's no agnosticism that makes sense. What I mean by that is the idea of why why investigate this question? Why open myself up to this uh, historical account? Why open myself up to this experience? Well. When it comes to specifically, and, and, and once again, just to, to circle back to the idea that when Rabbi Levi dealt with the Christian and the Muslim, he didn't refute them. He said, I, I wasn't brought up in that. There's something very, I do know comforting is the right word, but this is a Jewish story right now. It's calling upon Jewish people and their experience. A Jew has to answer the question, do I want to adopt this story or do I not want to adopt the story? There's no agnosticism here. Agnosticism, theoretically, is an approach, but when it comes to a decision that is a forced decision, I think this is what William James called it, he called it a monumentous forced decision, which, what he meant by that, it's a decision that you'll have to make. You can't say, it's like smoking, smoking good for you or bad for you, right, but I can't say I'm not going to make a decision, well, you can smoke, you just don't, okay, smoke is a bad example, Um, but if you go and smoke, well, you've made a decision, you're choosing to smoke. Similarly, when it comes to Judaism, you can't agnosticize or well, not deciding. You, not deciding is deciding, mm-hmm. no. it's a forced decision. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think people who don't like vaccinations use the same sort of argument, <laughs> like which is another conversation, but my point being, it's a forced decision and it's monumentous. It changes your life. So it's something that's worth, he felt it needed less evidence for the truth of it, but putting that to one side, the aspect of the forced nature of the decision means we have to investigate it. We have to make a decision. But when it comes down to it, all our decisions we make in life are based off a certain amount of probability, a certain amount of historical evidence. We, we act in the world based off what we think is most likely true. We can't escape that. Rabbi David Gottlieb presents an argument for the truth of the synatic revelation. He does so in a bit of a different way. And I hope with this, with our, with our 25 minutes, we can develop it. Now. He presents it in a in a in a way that I suppose a logician would. He's a he's a professor in a philosophy. In he was at least until he came to Israel, and he, he he taught he taught like mathematical logic or something like the philosophy of mathematics. So that's that's how he structures things, and he defends it on the internet. People write to him. He writes back to them. He posts their response. Very into that sort of thing. I'm not taking it to the level that he's taking it. He perhaps finds it far more convincing because he thinks that say. He develops it in an in ironclad way, which it might very well be, but the way I'm gonna present it now is that it is good enough to open ourselves up to accepting the experience. Does that make sense? Are we ready? Mm. Yeah. So what's the argument? The argument is based off an intuition. The intuition isn't the argument. It's important to point that out. An argument is what we call a positive argument, meaning I'm presenting you with evidence, and intuition is how you feel. The classical way the Jewish arguments for the truth of Sinai is put is, let's envision it was made up. How would that happen? We have today a group of Jewish people, lots of Jewish people who all have the same story. Until about 200 years ago, everyone believed it. Everyone believed it. Until the enlightenment, everyone believed it. At least if people spoke about it, They, would, they nobody would say they didn't believe it. Now that doesn't mean it's true, obviously. It just meant people believed it. The question is, how does a national experience get implanted in Jewish history? Well, how would we envision this? A person came up to the Jewish people and said, 500 years ago, God spoke to you guys on a mountain and gave you the Ten Commandments and gave you a whole bunch of laws. That's hard to accept. Why? Because if you go up to a bunch of people and say, your whole ancestry experienced something, what would I do? I would go to my cousin and say, Why don't we know about this? Why did we forget about this? Why don't we know about this today? And why are you telling us about it? There's a certain resistance when it comes to memory of this kind. The way it's often put is that it's, if I tell you, how's it best to put. If I tell you that when you were yesterday, you checked your phone twice in a class, would you believe me? It's not a particularly important event. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. If I say yesterday in class, someone hit you, you wouldn't believe me if it didn't happen because it's the type of event that you would remember. If I say when you were five, you got into an argument with your kindergarten teacher, maybe yes, maybe no. If I say when you were five, you broke your leg, you wouldn't believe me unless you broke your leg because it's a sort of story that's not forgettable. It's an unforgettable story. So just to finish off the they're playing it out, but that idea translates onto cultures. It translates onto cities. If I say if five, 150 years ago, your great-grandfather was put in jail for a day, maybe he was, I don't know, maybe. If I say 500 years, uh, 150 years ago, your grandfather was made a lord over Prussia, you probably know that. It's a sort of event that would probably be, he was a lord, like where's the estates? There's a sort of thing that you would expect certain things are believed and certain things are not believed. We are in a, th- but it works with cities as well. If I say, I don't know, Jerusalem uh, 300 years ago experienced a water shortage. Well, you'd like, okay, whatever. If I say 300 years ago, there was a massive earthquake or massive earthquake that destroyed most of Israel. It's the type of thing that being in Israel, being sorry, being in Jerusalem or being the city that you're in, if there was a massive earthquake of this nature, you'd probably have known about it. Certain events that I can tell you about that you'd believe, but some events you don't believe because they're too monumental but even in terms of your country. If I say the English people, there was a, how does my really put it? If there was, if there's a, um, if I say there was a blight that killed all the horses in England for six months and people had to like, run around and whatever, would you believe me? Even if you're English? Well, maybe, I check the history books. It doesn't say, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. But if I say England took over the entire tier of Europe 500 years ago for seven years, no, I've known about that. That's fine, you don't forget. A nation doesn't forget those sort of things. Even you know, though an arrow was in someone's eye. What? Even though, like, in 1066. Like, you know, the, you know, the like Battle of Hastings. East but hmm. even though something from that far. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, far. yeah, for sure. For sure. But certain things. But it's essentially interesting the Battle of Hastings because there's no well, archaeological that's, evidence that's a, of that. But well, that's such <laughs> a. Uh, like someone getting an arrow in the eye, such as minute new details? So why do we know that from but, a thousand years ago? So we'll, we'll, we'll get to, to specific details, because this argument isn't talking about specific details. The examples, when it came to your specific person, the details were specific. But when we're talking about a nation, the examples are big. The type of things nations don't forget. When we talk about silence, it's that sort of event. It's not just God spoke to you. It's God spoke to you and your entire life was transformed. The argument that he presents at this stage, sorry, the way it's presented at this stage is, this isn't that it's so thereby it's true. What is being presented is the reason why this sort of argument has a certain, there is a certain resistance to believing certain things. Sinai gets into this. That resistance is present in the Sinai story. This is how the argument is classically put over but it's not the argument. Why am I presenting it like this? Because if the Jewish people were presented with, God spoke to you, that doesn't really work because I would know that. If I said God spoke to your ancestors, I would know that. It wasn't God spoke to one ancestor, it was God spoke to all of you. It's the sort of thing that's not forgotten. Thereby, there is a resistance to believing it. Thereby, if it was believed, the argument is, thereby it happened. And one last point. This is an intuition. Nothing says that that resistance couldn't be overcome. A person could claim, thank you very much, Simi, lovely arguments, but you're projecting 21st century logic onto a bunch of pagan ex-slaves Egypt people. Don't project your analytical thinking onto them. I don't know what they would have believed. Maybe they would believe random things. Maybe they wouldn't. The argument's quite interesting at this stage, or the argument, the intuition is a powerful intuition. But a person can say, I don't share your intuition. Yeah, I, in my life, yes, in my experience now, don't know about that. That's one objection to the argument so far. Another objection is what's known as myth formation that myths begin very small, and slowly as time goes on, they, el- they elaborate. They, they become elaborate. They become fuller. They become bigger. It started off with one person spoke to God, and after a couple of hundred years, it was all of us. That is called myth formation. These are two classical critiques against the authenticity of the let's call it the story of Exodus. Sorry, there is an intuition, an intuition that certain stories are not believed. The Jewish people exist today as a people who all share the same story. Not really today, because as I said, post the Enlightenment, that got ruptured a bit. But there was a stage in Jewish history where everybody believed that. How did that story begin? Where did we all start saying, God spoke to all of us at Sinai? When did that start? When you go back to try and insert it somewhere, seems very difficult. It seems to be a big social pressure not to accept such stories. We feel that intuition. I think it's a powerful intuition. Every other Story of miracle or story of God speaking to people never happens like this. It always happens with one guy speaking to God, in which case you either believe that person or you don't believe that person. When it comes to Jewish people, it's God spoke to all of us. How does that start? I go to one person and say, God spoke to me, tell everybody he spoke to you. To begin with this story is very difficult. Hence the argument, hence the intuition is that if it began and people accepted it, then it happened. But that's not a positive argument. And the thing I said last week about the beauty of this argument appealing to lots of different, let's call it levels of intelligence, is that one level of appreciating the argument is that the Jewish people's inception is unique throughout history. No other nation starts like we did. No other nation has a story like we do. That moves people. The second movement for people is this intuition. Think of the power of the intuition. How does a nation begin a national revelatory tradition? How do you start such a thing? Well, this is an argument for or against. This is right now I'm giving you, it's not an argument at this point. We're just no, talking about the intuition. It's used. It's used it, people present it as an argument. Against. For, for the for. truth of Judaism. But so then you said that there were two the second one was Myth formation. Myth formation. That's that's so a that's, critique. That's, that's against that's against that's against. I so mean we've got this intuition. Often it's held up as being something very powerful. Mm. Because if you think about it, if I say to you, um, God spoke to me, you can either believe me or not believe me. If I say God spoke to you, Well, either he did or he didn't, you'll know that there and then. But if I say, guys, God spoke to all of you, you can collaborate, you can talk to each other. So, No, he didn't. Telling people what happened to them, people don't seem to accept. Telling people what happened to their ancestry, all of their ancestry, if it didn't happen, people don't seem to accept. We experience that intuition. The experience we would use here, take America, Take England, if I tell you something about the national history of England that didn't happen, you wouldn't accept it because you would know it's not true because if it was true, you would have kind of known about it. That's how the intuition goes. But it's important to point out most of the things that we experience in the world is based on testimony to one extent or another, historical testimony, but that's how we interact with the world. We interact with the world on the level of testimony, even though for the American civil war, we've got letters, we've got accounts, we've got books, we've got memoirs, but that's just another form of testimony. That is the direction the actual argument will go. Where I presented it now is in the level of an intuition. My, my teacher puts it over far better than I am, but for the purposes of this class, it's worth putting it over. The intuition we've dealt with, that people find quite compelling. And by the way, I'm not, not bringing pejorative against that. I also think it's kind of, kind of compelling. Our tradition has an inception unlike any other tradition in history. The fact that that can open me up to the experience. But what Rabbi David Gottlieb does is that he structures it as a category of history. What do I mean by that? And as a preliminary stages, when you hear, when you gain information, you gain information from sources. First of all, was the intuition clear? And then the argument against it Argument against it would be, I don't share your intuition. So yes, 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 and we will show why myth formation doesn't apply here. Yeah. Okay. But it's important to point out at no point is anything categorical. At no point is an intuition proof. At no point is any of the arguments I'm going to be presenting is like, well, I can think of a way of it not being true. Of course we can. We're trying to see the weight of the argument. That's all. When we get information, we get information from the sources and we judge the reliability of sources based off where they come from. If I hear something from CNN, I'll judge it in a certain way. If I hear it from Fox News, I'll judge it in a certain way. If I hear it from whether someone send it to me, from ammunition news, I'll also judge it in a certain way. How do I do that based on things that they report on but I kind of at times know the truth? When I've got other ways of knowing the truth and I see news sources reporting, I start judging them in a different way. For example, I know what happens in Israel when I hear a news reporter reporting about Israel and I know it doesn't mirror the facts because I have first access to the facts, I judge that, source's, that that news source on account to what I know is true. I, I balance it based on what I know is true and how they report it. But for example, when uh, the CNN reports about, let's call it Israel, I tell the BBC how they report on Israel, I'll take it with a pinch of so salt. When they give me the scores of the last game last night, I won't have any reason not to accept it for because there's no reason to assume there's a problem there. The sources of information we put in categories, certain people we speak to we accept as being more truthful than others, not because they're lying to us, they're just a more reliable source of information. For example, one of my friends, in not big chemist, is a massive conspiracy theorist. Every other day he's sending me a conspiracy theory on WhatsApp. And he's surprised I don't reply to him, but I just let him send them to me. Randomly, he says one time, no one has responded to this one, which shows there's truth to it. there are other people. Anyway, when he tells me something about the truth of the vaccine, he'll send me an article. He'll send me scholarly articles about it. I won't even bother looking at it. I hope he doesn't listen to this. Why? Because the level of reliability that this chap has in my eyes is next to nothing. He happens to be very savvy in high tech. If I've got a, I've never had a problem, but if he told me, so by the way, Next time you update Google, make sure you click this box. I'll be there in a minute. Because he's a source of information that I trust in that area. Simple so as that, he's he's in that category. But categories get not only affected by categories themselves get affected by how, uh, for example, when a, when a person testifies in a court of law and says A killed B, right? If a person, if A is a uh, a witness to a certain event, the reliability of A, will be judged by other criteria as well. His age, whether he was drunk, his experience while testifying previously, how I know he acts. These come into play, like my friend, happens to be obsessed with conspiracy theories. That's going to affect not only because I was able to check it, but because he's a certain type of personality that when he reports to me about Bill Gates, I'm not going to take him seriously anymore because he's acted in a way that shows that him as a category of trustworthy information, he's not a good one. Yes, exactly. The boy put himself into a category which we don't take seriously. Robert Gottlieb claims that when it comes to certain historical events, whenever we whenever we can check them out to be true, they're always true, but we can't always check them out to be true. I said that in the in in, in the Royal route He develops a certain category of historical event, what he calls national experiential traditions. There are certain traditions. That we experience in the world today, that were experienced by the nation as a whole, that would expect to change the life of the nation. Whenever we have those traditions on the ground, when we know of such traditions, whenever we can check those traditions, they're always true. To play it out again, when an entirety of a nation experiences something, it's not talking about the Torah yet. Judaism is not in the picture. This is a, a, a world Category of data, let's call it, of historical events. There are certain historical events that take place in the world. Those historical events he calls national because they happen to the entirety of the nation, of that nation. They experience something together as a nation that would change their life. Whenever we have those sort of events, whenever we can check them out, they're always true. We can't always check them, but when we can check them, they're always true to play it out. Further, take for example, a blight, a plague. The entirety of the nation experiences that plague. It changes their life drastically. When we have a report of a nation talking about a plague that happens to them in history, whenever we can check these reports, they're always true. Inventions, defeats in war, whenever we can check them, they're always true. Why are they always true? Because perhaps because of our intuition because these are the sort of things that aren't made up. They don't grab if they're not true. It's a category of historical events. Whenever we can check these events, they're always true. He then makes the next move, which the synatic story of the Jewish people is one of those such events. It's a national experiential tradition. I'll post on the group the PDF where he goes through it in uh, more detail. But the idea of a national experiential tradition that the Jewish people's history fits into, we have a nation, a tradition on the ground today, describing something that our ancestry experienced that would radically change their lives. These sort of historical events cannot always be checked, but when they can be checked, they're true. And Sinai fits into it. It's not a very emotionally moving argument, but what is he doing here? He's trying to show that the jewish people's historical recollection fits into a category of history when we can check it it's true we can't always check it but whenever we can it is always true the data and the proving of this by way of examples he goes through in his works this allows us to have a positive argument not just a powerful intuition yes Okay, so um, when he's talking about like all situations like this, all national experiential traditions, he's using the examples of like other. Yes. Can I just call them the EN... next He calls them ENTs. ENTs. Okay. And David When he's talking about, like, uh, we can check it and that it's true in regards to the Jewish tradition, is he talking about like archaeology yeah. and, like, and yeah. like he's saying that every time... We can do any sort of external checking on it, it always ends up being true. Be it an invention of the bow, be it a plague, be it a defeat or a victory, something that the entirety of... reason why a victory isn't the same as a defeat, why is a victory not the same as a defeat? Because if a bunch of people go out somewhere and win... Okay, that happened out there. When, ha- when you get defeated, it happened to you. So, whenever these events can be checked, they're true. But are revelations less visible? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. There's a category error here. Those are all natural events. This is a supernatural event. Absolutely. That is a massive hatchet to the argument. This is a positive argument that was presented historically. One way it doesn't live up is that, thank you, Simi. you were going to tell me that all the Jewish people experienced a defeat by the Assyrians, and we believe it's true, we handed that down, yeah, sure, I'm happy to accept it. But this is like God stuff. We don't have a gathering example of God stuff. This is the only national experience tradition in human history that has a God aspect to it. That is true. So how do they come up? We'll discuss that next time. And the myth The myth formation, the way he tackles myth formation is that we don't have any myths that develop like this. There's two ways of developing First of all, he's fitting this into an argument from a positive standpoint. He's saying it fits into that. Myth formation, is that possible? Yes, yeah, it's possible, but it's still, from our point of view, are justified in looking at it within the historical category. It fits into a historical category as that which, when it's checked, it's true. It can't always be checked, but when we can, it's true. By way of myth formation as being a description of what happens in human psyche, that's what myth is, how humans develop ideas. We don't see it happening anywhere. We don't have other myths like this. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, true. dead true. Dead true. Absolutely. The myth formation, the reason why the myth formation loses its power here is because we don't have other myths like this. Meaning, the claim is human psychology develops myths in this way. The response is no, it doesn't. It just doesn't do that. We would expect to see it elsewhere. We don't as about, well, um, um, myths forming like the Jewish one. The Jewish revelish, revelation, experience, we don't have myths that exist like that. The way you have an entire nation testifying to an idea. But it could still happen. it just happened once. Absolutely, absolutely. But what does he say about that? About he doesn't, that he, his he, point oh. is, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's not my, like putting it in, 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 a, in a, like a combative sense, it's not our, his job to knock down all possibilities. He's not trying to prove anything here. That's the key point here. He's not proving to you Judaism's true. He's presenting an argument to the truth of Judaism. Is it possible that it happened like this? Yes, it's possible, but he has a positive argument that it fits into a category of history. If it fits into that category of history, that gives it reliability, that gives it credibility. But if I were to just ask you, you know, to to show something that, that would Argue against the fact that it just started as like a small, like Hashem just spoke to Moshe, and then it became Hashem spoke to Moshe and people. Yeah, and yeah. then we ended up with this huge myth of, 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 of national revelation. What would you say to that? I would say that two things. One, that doesn't seem to be how human psyches develop because we don't see it anywhere else, in which case it happened just here. What do you mean? Meaning how we don't you know because we don't have any because of those we, myths. We would only see the end result. Correct, but we don't have any of those, except according to the argument would be, yes, it doesn't happen, but it happened this one time. Yeah. Okay, that weakens the, import, the, the, the the power of the claim that that's what happened. I would grant you, of course it's possible it happened. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying my argument is that I have a positive reason to say that that didn't happen. I, what, what's my plot, which is that it fits into a category of history that we have experience of other historical events that we can check, it fits into the category of national experiential traditions. When it fits into that category, I have a right to treat it as credible. Do I know it happened? No, but I don't know any historical event happened. I only work when it comes to credibility. This is an argument to the credibility in a positive sense, not just I've got an intuition but because... That's just ignoring the myth formation. That's just another argument for this argument. So it's, it's not- The reason why it's itself. not ignoring the myth formation is that it's saying, yes, myth formation is possible, but why don't I have to deal with myth formation is on the one side, it doesn't happen anywhere else, which means the claim of myth formation is humans make these sort of stories up. Yeah. The answer is no, they don't, because we don't have any examples of it. You would have had two other myths yeah. like this, right. three other myths like this. You'd say, yeah, human psyches make up these sort of myths. Jews, you're another one of these myths. It doesn't. In which case I can claim that's you're describing what humans do. I'm saying no, they don't because we don't see it anywhere else, In which case, we're an exception. Okay. Possible. A way of combating that possibility, I can't combat possibilities, because that's always going to remain possible, a way of combating this is that we have a positive argument, not just a strong intuition, the positive argument is that he develops a category of history that applies to many other areas of human history and says, Sinai fits in there, the natural versus the supernatural has to be dealt with, definitely, yeah. Um, yes, when you, mentioned, you know, the, star, was the idea that, like, because of Gere, there's with the whole collective memory thing, but um, also, like the thing is that with some of the really the commercial, they soul was there anyway. But like one thing isn't that we the experience and stuff that we maybe like was my friend's grandma. She converted to Judaism in Vienna in 1938. There's no way you're doing that unless you're like genuinely feel something- so, so. when I, my, my, I like, first of all very beautiful, I, and for sure. My claim was just I can't, I you explain to me how they do. My art uh, my my uncertainty was what would drive them the reason why i can say that is because maybe it's a projection if i wasn't jewish i wouldn't feel moved to become jewish you have to obviously, obviously your, your response is they're very special people they're very special people or there's something else going on there because there's no reason to adopt another story like this Especially in the exactly <laughs> so so your claim is coming above mine does that make sense so you're 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 you're, you're answering my uncertainty I'm not saying, I wasn't going to be saying they have no right to or whatever. Clearly they do, and they're moved by it. And by the way, one of the that's part of the idea of their soul being there. That sort of idea, trying to give over that there's that consciousness being accessed. So, in summation, which I'm not going to summarize the whole thing, I will post on the seminary group the idea of uh, a PDF of this argument played out in more detail. Then we will discuss the parallel between the natural and the supernatural. Yes. I want to jump into the fray of the natural, that's the supernatural. this the revelation is supernatural, but revelation is directly connected to exodus. is natural, So like that is an experience that is something natural that would be more difficult to both even based on all of these things as well. It's true, but a person could accept. The Exodus, but not except Sinai. That would mean that the Exodus is useless, and that everything is useless, and everything's. Sure. No, not religiously meaningful. It's actually interesting. One of the most, the biggest, the best argument of this type of structure isn't actually uh, Sinai. What national experiential tradition is more powerful than Sinai? The problem with Sinai is there's lots of lights and lots of clouds and yeah, all that sort of stuff. What experience the Jewish people have? They in calm of mind? No, because that's also ah crazy. Huh? No, 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 no. Back to the whole ex- nation the whole nation wasn't there. The mud. The Yeah, the man. Yeah. That was repeated. Yeah. There was calm. There was no fanfare. But we have that as part of our national psyche as well. It actually is a it's less awesome because it's uh, God talking. But in terms of a national experiential tradition. That's, a, that's the one Halevi uses as Manna. being the best the manner, well, because it's something we thought was like oh fun food. But yeah, but we have this, food. we have a, we have a, we have a national donuts. experiential There's tradition. The so the argument, the argument which we're not doing is saying we read the tira, and thereby we argue on the basis of the tire that it, the tira is true. Not doing that, we do have a tradition on the ground today. That's true, even if the tire is false. That's true how do we make sense of that tradition on the ground today? That's what the argument is doing. And you could say, because people read the Torah and people passed on what it said in the Torah. Yeah, but that just pushes the question up. Why did they start doing that? That's what makes it a very interesting argument. Once again, not a proof. There are gonna be holes and issues with the argument that people will poke at. He does his best to try and argue for them. But what I think this does do, both on the level of the intuition, but also on the level of the, positive argument opens us to act, to adopt the experience.